Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Welcome to the Enbridge Incorporated Second Quarter 2021 Financial Results Conference Call. My name is Frenzy and I will be your operator for today's call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Following the presentation, we will conduct a question and answer session for the investment community. During the question and answer session, if you have questions, please press star 1 on your touchstone phone. Please note that this conference is being recorded. I will now turn the call over to Jonathan Morgan, Vice President, Investor Relations. Jonathan, you may begin. Thank you. Good morning, and welcome to our Ember Inc. second quarter 2021 earnings call. Joining me this morning are Al Monaco, President and Chief Executive Officer, Colin Grunding, Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer, Vern Yu, Executive Vice President, Liquids Pipeline, Bill Yardley, Executive Vice President, Gas Transmission and Midstream, Cynthia Hansen, Executive Vice President, Gas Distribution and Storage, and Matthew Ackman, Senior Vice President, Strategy and Power. As per usual, this call will be webcast, and I encourage those listening on the phone to follow along with the supporting slides. A replay of the call will be available today, and a transcript will be posted to the website shortly after. We'll try to keep the call to roughly an hour, and in order to answer as many questions as possible, we'll be limiting to one plus a single follow-up as necessary. We'll be prioritizing calls from the investment community, so if you are a member of the media, please direct your questions to our communications team who will be happy to respond. As always, our investor relations team will be available for any detailed follow-ups after the call. On to slide two, where I'll remind you that we'll be referring to forward-looking information on today's presentation and Q&A. By its nature, this information contains forecast assumptions and expectations about future outcomes, which are subject to the risks and uncertainties outlined here, and discussed more fully in our public disclosure filings. We'll also be referring to non-GAAP measures summarized below. With that, I'll turn it over to Al Monaco. Okay, thanks, Jonathan. Good morning, everybody. Well, first, just to kick it off, as you see on this cover slide here, it really illustrates one of the key points we'll be speaking to today, which is the strong recovery that's underway right now. I'm going to start with a mid-year recap, followed by an update on the fundamentals and how our business is nicely positioned for the energy transition. Colin will take you through the numbers, and this time around, our progress on sustainability. This next slide is our 2021 priorities dashboard. Our core businesses perform very well, high utilization across liquids, gas transmission, and the gas utility. That drove strong first and now second quarter numbers, so we're confirming full-year EBITDA and DCF guidance as you saw in our release. The $17 billion capital program is on track with $10 billion scheduled for in-service this year, and that'll drive our three-year 5 to 7% DCF per share CAGR outlook. Our balance sheet is in great shape. In fact, Moody's upgraded us to BAA1, so we're now at that level across our four agencies. 
And the sale of our minority stake in Averco provides more buffer and releases great value for a non-strategic asset. While upstream investment remains disciplined, we're seeing a pickup in commercial activity around the U.S. Gulf Coast in particular, system modernization, and low-carbon opportunities. And we continue to bolster our industry-leading ESG position. MSCI reaffirmed our A rating, so we're pleased with that. So the message is that we're on track to deliver on the 2021 priorities we laid out at Enbridge Day last November. Moving to slide five, the economic recovery is gaining momentum. Global fuel demand has rebounded, but not fully back to pre-pandemic levels. Transport sectors came back with gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel all up. Pet cam demand was less affected by the pandemic, so the jump is not as pronounced here, but still up 3%. We've seen the return of global LNG demand, and with that, strong pricing. We're still taking a cautious approach to the rebound, but it's pretty clear the recovery will drive crude and natural gas demand led by developing countries. And as you've heard us say before, we're big believers that natural gas will be essential no matter what the pace of the energy transition. Aside from the many benefits of gas, the fact is that it's also crucial in supporting renewables growth and reducing global emissions. And that's playing out more and more when you look at how gas is being built into long-term energy resource management planning. That's playing out in real time in Ontario with our announced new community expansions for gas and other regions looking to displace coal-fired generation. So the picture highlights the strong runway for conventional energy growth over the next decade. But as we've been saying, we've been evolving our business to align with the changing energy fundamentals. So here's what that looks like for us. Any way you look at it, we're gonna play a big role in the energy future. That's simply because our businesses have both conventional and low carbon growth opportunities. And this chart illustrates how we think about this duality. Demand for capacity on natural gas and crude systems means more modernization and expansion investments toward export infrastructure in particular. That's because over 80% of conventional demand comes from petrochemicals, industrial, power, and heavy-duty transportation, which continues to grow globally with limited alternatives at this time. In addition, we expect our low carbon growth opportunities to scale up. We've got a competitive renewables business with a growing European offshore portfolio. And that capability has allowed us to accelerate our solar self power strategy and lowering emissions. RNG, hydrogen, and CCOS will take time to be a bigger part of the energy mix, but we're investing in these opportunities today across our businesses. In liquids, we're well positioned to support our customers' emissions goals through CCUS. I'm gonna come back to this one in a few minutes. The same holds true for gas businesses where we have access to saline aquifers, direct connections to customers, and the utility platform we're investing in hydrogen and RNG today. Importantly, these low carbon investments will ensure continued utilization of our assets for a long time while lowering the emissions intensity. So that's how we're positioned early for the transition. On to slide seven. In the near term, our five to 7% BCF per share growth through 2023 
will be driven by what you see here. One to two percent from embedded revenue escalators, and of course that provides good inflation protection, low capital intensity optimizations, and productivity improvements, while the rest is driven by secured projects in execution right now. We've also laid out our post-2023 growth drivers and our capital allocation options. Now, Colin's going to go through the framework and priorities, but in summary, we have an attractive organic opportunity set, but we'll be very disciplined and not chase growth where the returns or commercial underpinnings don't fit the value proposition you're used to seeing from us. So we'll evaluate those organic opportunities against other options like share buybacks. Let's shift now to the business updating, starting with liquids. We just completed a 160,000 barrel per day expansion of the woodland system to keep up with curl production. And those volumes, of course, support downstream throughput on the main line. It's a good example of the low-cost opportunities we have in liquids. Now, in Q2, customers took advantage of the shoulder season for refinery and upgrade or turnarounds, resulting in lighter throughput as we forecasted. Volumes are picking up again, trending towards our full-year forecast of about 2.8 million barrels per day, and we've laid out this trajectory in the chart. On mainline contracting, the hearing wrapped up last week, as you heard. Shipper support continues to be strong and noteworthy that some dissenters even, while disputing the negotiated toll, are supportive of contracting. On to line three, we received a positive decision from the Minnesota Court of Appeals, which reaffirmed the PUC permits. Construction-wise, we're tracking the schedule. We're about 80% through mainline construction, slightly higher on stations. So we're moving along well and continue to work on water crossings. All that to say, we're on track for a Q4 in service, and once we get there, Line 3 will contribute nicely to cash flow growth. We're all focused on construction progress, of course, but a couple of things to point out here. First, the project enhances the safety and reliability of our system. That's good for us, it's good for customers, but it's also positive for the rest of our stakeholders. And second, there's great support from local communities and tribes that continues, and we've invested locally to ensure they benefit from this project. We're very proud of the $250 million plus in spend with tribal businesses, their workers, and communities. Lastly, on the liquids business, how we're thinking about carbon capture using Western Canada as the reference point, given the opportunity to make a big impact on emissions. So that's on the next slide. First of all, there's no doubt that CCUS will be critical to meeting society's net zero targets. I think little by little that uh, is agreed upon by just about everyone. And it's essential uh, to Canada's emissions goals in particular and the U.S. as well. And it was good to see some of the new infrastructure details come out uh, also being supportive there. The sheer investment needed is going to be massive. With current technology, it takes roughly $1 billion of capital to reduce a megaton of CO2. We're excited about this opportunity, and our strategy is driven by the fundamentals. And while the technology really isn't that new, we need clarity on policy to scale up and attract capital. So as you know, in the U.S., the 45Q provides a good foundation. That's starting 
to make things happen at an even faster pace. In Canada, incentives are on the way as well, and we're at the table to help shape that outcome. But important to recognize that emitters and our customers will be driving the timing. We're in discussions across industries to explore how we can support them. Our strategy focuses on the full value chain from capture through to storage, which aligns well with our assets, and we believe a utility-like commercial model will be most cost-effective. These are complex projects, so our scale, customer relationships in all of our businesses, execution capability, and ESG focus make us a natural partner. And it will be important to work with technology and industry partners as well. As an example, we've just entered into a partnership with Svante, which has developed innovative carbon capture technology. We like this because it can be used for a range of industrial applications at much lower capital cost. And that, of course, has attracted a lot of attention from the upstream community. We're going to keep you posted on how we're progressing on the strategy. Moving to the next slide and gas transmission, where we're slated to bring in $3 billion plus of projects into service this year. Construction on T-South and Spruce Ridge in BC is progressing well, and we've put the initial phases in service in Q2. On T-South, two, two of the five stations and the initial segment of Spruce Ridge are operating. Both of these projects are cost of service, commercial underpinning, which ensures a solid return on $1.5 billion of capital. Great progress on our U.S. Gulf Coast LNG strategy with construction of the Cameron Extension Project, which will supply about $800 million a day to the Calcasieu Pass liquefaction plant. And there we're on track for Q4 in service, and that's a $200 million project as a reminder. And these projects fit right in the middle of our low-risk fairway. The same is true for a modernization program, and that's on slide 12. The criticality, as I mentioned, of natural gas to the future energy mix is going to drive investments for many years to come. Part of that will be compression, which also helps reduce emissions. And as it says here, it's about a 25% per compressor reduction in emissions as we move along. And we're working with industry partners now on how we can add carbon capture. We think modernization capital will be roughly half a billion to a billion annually for, for which we'll earn a solid return. And related to that, we'll be initiating a Section 4 rate filing on Texas Eastern shortly. We've also received FERC approval on our alliance and, and MNNE settlements, and we should hear back on East Tennessee soon. So things are moving along on the regulatory front well on gas. Development activity, as I mentioned early, is also picking up, and our new Ridgeline project is a good example. We're pleased to be working with the Tennessee Valley Authority, that's TVA, on an opportunity that could provide affordable, cleaner energy to the utility's customers. Ridgeline would expand our East Tennessee system, which would be about a billion dollars, assuming the combined cycle option is selected through the TVA's review process. It's a great example of how natural gas can preserve reliable and affordable energy while lowering emissions by replacing coal-fired generation. Pending TVA's environmental assessment and supply source determination, project approval and the necessary permits were projected to be complete 
by 2026, and that'll support our medium-term outlook. On to the next slide in gas distribution. The utility just continues to grow and delivers solid results. We're on track to add another 45,000 customers this year, and we're very excited to be moving forward with our community expansion program comprised of 27 new connection, connections, including remote Indigenous communities. Along with system modernization and reinforcement projects, we see investing one to one and a half billion annually in this business. And our incentive regulatory framework, while generating a good return, also ensures that the investments get captured in rate base. An evolving and substantial long-term opportunity is lower carbon emission solutions. On to slide 15, our utility has been a fantastic way to develop innovative lower carbon RNG and hydrogen that will green the gas grid by leveraging our assets. On RNG, our Dufferin project went into service this month. That makes three projects in operation. There's another three in construction with 10 to 15 in the hopper, including through our partnership with Comcor and Walker Industries. Perhaps a larger opportunity is leveraging our assets for hydrogen. Our initial pilots are proving out the technology and scaling hydrogen across the system. At our Markham, Ontario facility, we validated the green power to gas phase, so that's good to see. And we're now constructing phase two to inject hydrogen into a closed loop system in the utility. The blending facility is about three quarters done and on track to be in service later this year, so we're looking forward to that. In Quebec, we're planning to blend up to 5% into our gas a fair utility, and that project is currently in design and engineering. So you can see we've got a great utility platform to develop low-carbon opportunities within a low-risk business model. Now on to slide 16 and our renewables business. First, good progress on the three French offshore wind projects. On St. Nazaire, 13 of the 80 foundations are done and turbines are being manufactured for FECOM and Calvados. These three projects are scheduled for in-service in late 22 through 2024, the first being St. Nazaire, so solid cash flow growth to come over this period. Our Maple Power Development Team continues to build the pipeline. We've got two projects with potential for over 600 megawatts in France that have secured leases. Dunkirk Nearshore and Provence Grand Large, which is a floater uh, pilot, uh, obviously further offshore. And we're starting community consultations on the Rampion Extension Project in the UK, and that's up to a 1.2 gigawatt project. So you can see here there's a lot going on in this business, but in the bigger picture, the frothiness we're seeing in renewable space has made our assets more valuable. We've got an inventory of projects we started developing a while ago before things got overheated so we can grow without getting involved in highly competitive situations. On to slide 17 and an update on solar self-powers. There's lots happening here as well. We now have three projects in service, two in our gas system and one in liquids. We sanctioned another four liquid stations recently, which will add 40 megawatts, so it's beginning to be a meaningful part of our renewable strategy. What's exciting is the broader opportunity across our LP and GTM businesses, and you can see 
The dots here show the location of pump stations on the liquid system and compression on natural gas. We see the potential to deploy up to half a billion over the next few years, with more after that. Of course, these investments will need to clear our hurdle rates, and they also reduce scope two emissions. You can see here on the chart uh, the opportunity for emissions reductions over the years. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Colin. All right, thanks, Al, and uh, good morning, everyone. I'll start with a quick uh, overview of our $17 billion capital program. As you know, it's a big growth driver for us, but not our only one. We're making great progress on our program across the footprint, and we're on track, as Al said, to deliver $10 billion of projects into service this year. This well-diversified growth portfolio should generate a significant step up in cash flows, really a conveyor belt, if you like, of additional cash flows for many years. And in turn, uh, considerable financial flexibility and investment capacity, which is clear on slide 19. In addition to our secured uh, growth execution, we've actively recycled capital at attractive valuations over the last few years high-grading the portfolio and further strengthening our financial position. Our recently announced sale of our interest in Neverco at uh, 29 times earnings multiple is a great example of this. When that transaction closes, we'll have completed over $9 billion of asset sales since 2018, all while growing total cash flows. And as you know, deleveraging while growing is not exactly an easy feat. Today, our balance sheet is right where we want it to be, and across the board, our agencies recognize this strength uh, currently, even now prior to uh, executing on our 21 capital program. We've been triple B plus rated with, uh, with three agencies for a while now, and the upgrade for Moody's last month makes uh, four for four. And as I mentioned, our execution will lead to even stronger metrics in 2022 towards the bottom of our target range or even below. Our preference, then, will be to live near the lower end of that target range to preserve a maximum optionality. On to slide 20 and a quick overview of our capital allocation priorities. We've said this before, but it bears reemphasizing because it illustrates capital discipline. Our priorities are unchanged. Financial strength, responsible dividend growth, and 3 to $4 billion per year of rateable utility-like in-court or reinvestment represent our core game plan, if you like. That will leave us with about $2 billion of additional annual capacity, which we'll deploy against the next best alternatives. So as Al alluded to a couple of times, conventional growth will need to compete with share buybacks, which remain attractive also. Now I'll walk through our quarterly financial results on slide 21. Adjusted EBITDA was $3.3 billion, while DCF was $1.24 per share, and earnings were $0.67 cents per share. I won't review all the details that are in our news release in 10Q, but if I step back, there are a few uh, key observations. First, each of our platforms is humming along nicely. Q2 last year was, of course, the trough for energy demand, and it's clear that the economic recovery is now in full swing. Second, foreign currency translation continues to provide, provide a slight uh, headwind. As you know, our assets are geographically diversified with about two-thirds of our businesses earning U.S. dollar-denominated income, which we substantially hedge. The translation of our U.S. operating results in each segment 
were negatively impacted by the weaker U.S. dollar, which is partially offset by our hedging gains reported uh, below in eliminations and other segments. Third, energy services continues to be challenged by underutilization of some of our fixed contract commitments due to a confluence of unusual market conditions, including uh, weak basis, um, limited blending opportunities, and market backwardation structurally, so uh, little value in storage these days. In contrast, you'll recall last year we benefited from significant contango conditions and related storage gains uh, due to the pandemic. As a reminder, uh, these relate to unused demand charges. They are not speculative trading losses. Finally, in DCF, we're benefiting from favorable interest rates and translation of U.S. interest expense, and we're expecting cash tax savings stemming from increased utilization of existing tax pools to offset proportionately uh, larger U.S. dollar taxable income. So overall, another good quarter in the books. So let's move now to the outlook for the second half of the year on slide 22. Starting with EBITDA operating performance uh, for the first half of the year was uh, a little better than planned, but that's been partially offset by a weaker U.S. dollar, as I mentioned, and negative contributions from energy services also. Overall, we expect first-half trends to continue through the second half of the year, including, including strong utilization of our systems, so we're confident that we'll perform within our guidance range for EBITDA. A few more comments on EBITDA. As I mentioned, our U.S. dollar exposure is substantially hedged, which materially protects us from a weaker dollar. Uh, secondly, um, a comment on inflation. Uh, it's potentially trending up, but again, we're well protected here with about 80% of our revenues having either built-in inflators contractually or periodic regulatory protections through uh, rate proceedings. Uh, from a quarterly EBITDA profiling perspective, a reminder that seasonally Q3 is our lowest uh, quarterly contributor, of course with lower heating days in the summer months affecting our utility, lower wind resources and renewables, and some seasonal effects in our liquids uh, system partly related to maintenance. I should also mention that uh, Texas Eastern Service uh, is fully resumed uh, now and sooner than expected uh, previously. Of course, Q4 uh, profile-wise tends to be a larger contributor with winter heating season driving good results in our gas businesses, and Line 3 is on track to be in service, which should contribute uh, nicely to cash flows per our original guidance. Turning to DCF, our second half results will, of course, align with EBITDA, but should also benefit from continued favorable interest expense, uh, lower rates, favorable USD translation, and uh, lower financing requirements than we originally expected uh, due to the anticipated proceeds from the Neverco uh, transaction close. Finally, uh, at this point, we do expect that cash tax savings for the full year will be around $100 million relative to our original guidance for the year. On to slide 23 with a quick word on sustainability. We've integrated sustainable practices into our business for a long time. Each of the E, S, and G are absolutely essential to how we have been running our business and engaging with our customers and communities in which we operate. In June, we issued our 20th annual 
Sustainability Report, which reflects this long-standing commitment. The report highlights our good progress towards our emission redu reduction targets. We've reduced Scope 1 emissions by 32% and Scope 2 emissions by 14% since 2018. And we have line of sight to execution pathways needed to meet our 2030 intensity goal and our 2050 net zero goal. On the S, community and stakeholder engagement is integral to both project execution and, of course, operations thereafter. A few numbers, we've spent over a billion dollars with Indigenous groups since 2017, including direct spend and subcontracting opportunities with Indigenous businesses. And in 2020, in one year, we contributed $3 billion of property taxes and income taxes to various levels of government. Our continental workforce is diverse already, and we're striving to enhance all elements of diversity, including at the board level, to achieve our 2025 target. On the G, our board is highly engaged with the diversity of backgrounds, experience, and thought, and importantly, our ESG priorities are tied to enterprise-wide management compensation, ensuring alignment to our performance. Our objective is to be a leader, and the ESG rating agencies recognize this across the board. We continue to innovate and, uh, in this regard, and in this quarter, that mindset is reflected in our issuance of our first sustainability-linked bond. A few comments on it. We're proud to be a leader in sustainability-linked financing. Our published framework guides our thinking in this regard. And in that framework, we've selected KPIs that align with our goals and we think are critical to our long-term success. Of course, we followed up the framework with a billion-dollar sustainability-linked bond in June, which combined with our billion-dollar credit facility, also sustainability-linked, earlier this year, that now ties already $2 billion in financings to our ESG performance. We think this capital formation trend will dovetail well with how we conduct business. Uh, in particular, we see both pricing and, moreover, access benefits for sustainable financing. For example, approximately 40% of our SLB order book were ESG-type uh, mandate investors, adding further demand to our already diverse investor following. Before I turn uh, things back to Al to wrap up, I'm excited to introduce and invite you to attend two events. On September 28th, we'll be hosting our inaugural ESG Forum in New York. At that event, you'll hear from a diverse group of our leaders about how we've embedded leading ESG practices within our business. And we'll continue to hold our annual Investor Day on December 7th. This year, it'll be in Toronto. This is always a great opportunity for us to share our business and corporate plans, and we look forward to connecting with uh, many of you in person. It's, uh, it's been a while. Uh, thank you, and, and back to you all. Okay, thanks, Colin. Uh, just before we open it up, just a few takeaways. I think 2021 is, it should be clear from that run through, a pivotal year to delivering on the three-year outlook that we outlined at Enbridge Day last year, and we're progressing well. The businesses are running at high utilization and financial performance, as you just heard, is strong. Execution of the program is tracking the plan with that $10 billion that Colin just referred to. The pace of the economic recovery gives us confidence around demand for conventional energy over the medium term. And importantly, our assets are essential to the energy transition. As you heard, we're making good progress on our low carbon investment strategy in a number of areas. And finally, our leading position on ESG is getting stronger yet. 
and good progress on our goals there. So we'll begin the Q&A session now. Uh, the team is uh, on the line here. I'll, I'll uh, hand off as required uh, on specific issues. Thank you. We will now begin the question and answer session. If you have a question, please press star 1 on your touchstone phone. If you wish to be removed from the queue, please press pound sign or the hash key. If you are using a speakerphone, you may need to pick up the handset first before pressing the number. Once again, if you have a question, please press star 1 on your touchstone phone. Jeremy Tonette of JP Morgan is on the line. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. I just want to start off here uh, on the RNG side, really, and just want to dive into the strategy a little bit. Um, just wondering what the current CNI demand for RNG that you're seeing here is. There any differentiation by sourcing uh, carbon attributes? Just wondering if commercial industrial customers are interested in RNG for the negative attributes. Okay, Jeremy. Hi. Um, <clears throat> well, I think maybe Cynthia will. will uh, have her speak to this given she is uh, moving that strategy along and, and has good uh, engagement with the customers there. So, uh, And then if Bill has anything to add on the gas transmission front. Uh, thanks, Al. Uh, yeah, Jeremy, we're having uh, some really um, strong interest from various uh, commercial and industrial uh, users. Of course, across Ontario and parts of Quebec, we have uh, the opportunity to, to deliver that. And then our, um, we've been able to facilitate the delivery of RNG across uh, uh, North America because, of course, it, it, it trades in a fungible way. So we are seeing lots of strong interest. Uh, there is uh, a really great opportunity to continue to build on that as we have the, the partnerships, as Al, Al mentioned, with Comcor and uh, Walker Industries to really help build that out uh, across Canada. So it's something that uh, we're seeing some strong interest. We've been able to facilitate some of those transactions, and we look forward to the opportunity to expand on that in the future. Yeah, you know, I'll just add a couple things. First of all, you know, I think on the CNI side, yes, we are seeing direct interest. Um, but in, in a lot of cases, Jeremy, it's 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 the local distribution companies like Cynthia's that are, as you know, our major customers that are looking to work with us to uh, bring RNG in from various sources. And you know, they're motivated. They their their main trade association, AGA, uh, even if it's just for residential mode, so getting away from CNI is saying, hey, this could be a this could be half of our gas in the uh, you know by the middle of the uh, century. So um, there's a, there's an awful lot to do here between uh, Cynthia's utility and and our fairly substantial uh, transmission system. 
gut is. So it sounds like it could be uh, supply diversification away from Russian LNG in the winter in the Northeast. You have to get it. Shift gears a little bit here on carbon capture. Um, and just wanted to see how you guys think about the total addressable market here. Uh, it seems like there's been a lot of focus on the oil sands producers, but it also seems heavy industry. There's no other path to decarbonize besides CCS. And just wondering, you know, how you think about that and the opportunity set both in Canada and I guess the U.S. as well. Yeah, maybe I'll start it off and Vern can add. Jeremy, um, well, first of all, you're absolutely right. And, you know, the, the numbers on the total addressable market vary. I mean, it, the bottom line is it's a big number. It's it's likely in the order of $2 trillion. And, and I go back to my comments earlier on. If you look at the um, sources of emissions reductions, opportunities, I think everybody's familiar with, with them, but, you know, energy efficiency, uh, certainly renewables uh, will be a big chunk. But a, a very significant and for certain chunk will be CCUS. We just don't see uh, how we meet the goals without CCUS. So the capital is is, is going to be large, uh, and you know obviously existing infrastructure players like ourselves are going to be involved. And as I said earlier in the comments, we're thinking that the opportunity set for us really covers from the upstream uh, capture part through, of course, the transportation and ultimately sequestration. Uh, and if you look at the assets, for example, in, in the utility, good storage assets there that are applicable. Uh, Bill's gas transmission has got great storage there. And of course, if you look at the overall picture here in Canada and in, in, in the oil sands, in the future of the oil sands, uh, it's pretty obvious that CCUS will be a big part of that. So it's large, as I said earlier, it's you know not immediate. These things will take some time to work out, especially as the policy and incentive framework uh, rolls out here over the next little while, but uh, no doubt big opportunity. Um, Bern? Okay, thanks, Al. Uh, Jeremy, you're absolutely right. The, uh, the industrial opportunity is very substantial. Um, as you know, cement, plastics, um, uh, uh, power generation, all kinds of other things are really critical to what we do as a society, and CCUS can make a meaningful uh, difference in our emission reductions. So I think the EIA has put out stats out there that uh, to meet global net zero goals, that CCUS is anywhere between nine and 30% of the total carbon abatement we want to see by the middle of this uh, century. So we're actively talking with customers, uh, both in the oil sands as well as across heavy industry to see what we can do to help uh, reduce emissions. Obviously in Canada, we need a little bit more clarity on the investment tax credit, but in the U.S. we're also very active. So uh, I think in our announcements today, we talked about a an opportunity to work with a new technology player, Savante, and we will be focused with them looking at industrial CCUS uh, implementation across North America. Got it. That's very helpful. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Your next question comes from the line of Robert Kwan from RBC Capital Markets. Your line is now open. Okay. Good morning. Um, some questions here just on 
capital allocation and starting with asset monetization. Um, you know, your strategy has really shifted away from as needed for funding to something more opportunistic like you've done with Novercos. I'm just wondering, are there other material opportunities to do more that we might see in, in the relatively near future? And, and if so, you know, how do you think about the timing of that? Is it just selling it down when it's opportunistic and deploy it the capital later, or, or is it going to be more about timing uh, for when you've got um, deployment opportunities? Mm. I, I think the main driver is is the former, uh, and really it's driven by, I guess, Robert, the constant look uh, at the portfolio and whether or not we can, um, you know, monetize assets that at and superior value, as you've seen. I mean, I think the bigger picture, we're generally happy with our asset mix, certainly the commercial structure that underpins them. You know, we have very little GMP exposure now. Um, we see ample conventional runway uh, in those businesses. And as I just went through, the businesses support our, our uh, strategic actions to support the transition. Uh, you know, we look at every possible opportunity to release value. I think we've proven that, um, you know, we'll take action. I think over the last three years, it's been about $9 billion of assets and with this latest one, Noverico, as well. So, uh, you know, we'd certainly consider looking at other things uh, if we received full, more than full value for them. So it's, it's going to be opportunistic, as Colin pointed out, the balance sheet is in very very good shape, so it'll be selective uh, monetization to uh, you know to generate value where where we can on a on a you know I guess uh, specific basis when we see those opportunities. Got that. Um, and then if I kind of continue on capital allocation, and you spent a lot of time today, uh, you know, talking about a lot of the energy transition opportunities. And it seems like that portfolio of opportunities is getting bigger and bigger. Um, so uh, I guess first, what approach do you take to ascribing value to some of the soft factors around it being ESG friendly? And I guess specifically thinking about your willingness to accept um, single-digit equity returns to some of the solar self-powering. Um, and then I guess the second part of it is as these pool of potential projects grow, if you exceed that three to four billion in capital threshold that you've set out, does that change how you approach, you know, capital allocation with respect to the pecking order, um, uh, or or your priorities of, of maintaining that leverage range, and your self-funding constraints? Okay. Well, uh, Colin, go ahead. Hey, Robert. Yeah. Thanks for that question. You know, we've got a uh, a robust and mature investment framework that we've. Uh, used with discipline for many years here and um, you know we we're, we we don't generally accept single digit returns uh, maybe anywhere except in Cynthia's business where you know there's a regulatory compact so um, our return thresholds are generally higher than that um, it, and as we think about energy transition investments we, we think about it generally in the same lens. We're an infrastructure company. Um, we we want to uh, secure a return of and on our, our capital. And, uh, you know, we're not, we're not thinking about energy transition investments really in an R&D 
um, you know, bleeding edge kind of way. So we're going to be pretty disciplined. Um, as we mentioned, there is room for energy transition uh, capital investment in our financial capacity outlook within that five to six billion per year. We've got excellent line of sight to three to four and everything else will kind of compete against yeah, each other, uh, including energy transition. However, um, there is, uh, you know, just to round this up, maybe this is where your question was going, we do consider uh, ESG and have for a couple of years in our, uh, in our framework um, to either uh, reward or penalize different, different investments around our hurdle rates. So that's how we're thinking about it. It's, it's, it's probably more of the same. Uh, Robert? It's all, I think maybe just to round that out, the way we're thinking about the transition, you know, at 50,000 feet, it's really a parallel effort with the core conventional growth that we have. So if you look at what Colin said about uh, the capital capacity that we have, you know, it's pretty clear that at least three to four billion of the five to six in total capacity, let's call that core conventional uh, business and with that, the returns that you're used to seeing from us. So that extra two billion in capacity uh, really is, you know, projects will have to compete straight up, whether it's Matthew's renewables business or whether it's solar self power or, or other, uh, other types of investments, including, you know, more organic growth. And, you know, if you look at how we've prosecuted RNG and hydrogen and Cynthia's business, uh, it's basically, you know, the same type of returns that we've seen. So Colin's point about being disciplined, I think, is the key here. Uh, and although it's important to carve out some capability for the transition, um, we don't expect to take, uh, you know, a significant reduction in return. Okay, that's great. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Your next question comes from the line of Schnur Vershuni from UBS. Your line is now open. Good morning. Hi. I um, was wondering if uh, if we can start off, or can, I guess can really continue the discussion on the CCS side since it's been topical today. Um, you know, you, you announced the MOU today um, that you have in place. Um, I was wondering if we can sort of talk about the technical aspects. You made a comment in your prepared remarks that I think it was a billion dollars of capital uh, equals, uh, I think it was one megaton, for example. Um, I was wondering about how we can, if, if you can sort of talk about utilizing your existing pipeline systems for moving carbon, um, you know, what are the technical aspects that we need to think about? Can they handle the higher pressures? Do you need thicker wall, uh, pipeline walls? Um, do new systems really have to be built or can some of the more recently laid pipe actually handle I'm just kind of wondering if you can sort of talk us through the technical aspects that we should be thinking about. Okay, thanks. Um, that's a, those are great questions. I think from a technical perspective, uh, our view is that new pipelines are better than existing pipelines to, to manage uh, carbon uh, CO2 precisely. They need to operate at significantly higher pressures to, um, to deal with the liquefied CO2. So uh, I think what we've been most focused on is that when you go ahead and execute this kind of uh, infrastructure, you, you're most mindful of trying to minimize the overall cost. Uh, 
So while there, there's going to be a need for hubs uh, throughout uh, North America, the shortest pipelines you can build, build to those hubs will be the most cost advantageous. So from our perspective, it's really looking at the individual customer's need, uh, the, the emitter, and trying to figure out what is the cheapest and most reliable system to set up for them. And I think in most circumstances, that's going to uh, involve building new pipelines that have a very short distance to uh, a sequestration hub. Okay, that, that makes perfect sense. And then, you know, maybe to, to continue on here, um, you know, I, I really enjoyed this slide, you know, talking about your connection flexibility and two-thirds of the $46 billion of going to high-priority investments and so forth. And so you kind of have this, this $2 billion flex. And then we'll, when I look at your $17 billion of secured backlog, um, just trying to understand how that number is going to grow over time in context of the discussion that's been going on today, um, you know, how much – capital are you looking at or how many projects in terms of dollars are you looking at um, that could move into the secured backlog that would be you know classified by most investors as you know energy transition related capital um, is it something where the backlog can grow by five billion over the next three to five years or is it something that where it grows by you know 10 to 20 billion dollars Okay. Well, let me let me start off uh, and call and connect. You know, I think it's I, I think we've outlined um, certainly at Enbridge Day and and uh, in other places. If you look at the backlog, uh, you know, in traditional terms, the way we've added it all up, there's somewhere in the order of thirty billion dollars in that. Now, we've obviously emphasized that you know not not as much because we're continuing to focus on the efficiency of Capital and, and minimizing uh, large-scale investments, but it's it's around 30 billion over the next few years, and so that translates to roughly five to six billion a year, Schner. And so if you you kind of back into each of the businesses, you know, you're looking at liquids roughly a billion or two a year in terms of optimizations, expansions, and extensions in, in what Vern's looking at. I think GTM is probably in the $2 billion category, uh, Bill's modernizations, um, expansions. We've got a lot of LNG to look at. In the utility, uh, I mentioned it's probably a billion, billion and a half. Again, reinforcements, customer ads, uh, the new community expansions that we were talking about. And then I think in, in, um, in Matthew's business in renewables, you know, it's somewhere in the order of a billion a year. So my point is, it, you know, it doesn't take too much to fill up the five to six billion a year of capacity with our what looks to be our organic uh, backlog. But again, uh, I think the three to four billion we've identified, we think that's locked. Uh, and then the other two are going to be uh, very discriminating, let's put it that way. So I think there's a good backlog there. We're just going to be... Uh, careful on how we uh, deploy it. Anything to add, Colin? Uh, well, maybe just a, a reminder that I think Sterney, you were asking about energy transition-oriented capital. I'm not exactly sure what you've got in that bucket. Everybody's defining that a bit differently, but uh, you know, I think we would argue a lot of our uh, core businesses will contribute through energy transition. So I think Al's answer captures that globally. Within the, you know a more refined Definition of energy transition. I think uh, Al mentioned there's 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 not an immediate um, 
you know, scalable investment opportunity in some of these areas, um, other than renewables, which I think Matthew's pretty excited about. And uh, you know, we can allocate, you know, one to two billion a year in that business, uh, you know, in, in the immediate term. I don't know if that helps round that out, Schnur. No, it, it perfectly does. Um, really appreciate the, the caller today, and I uh, hope you guys enjoy your weekend. Okay, thank you. Your next question comes from the line of Rob Hope from Scotiabank. Your line is now open. Uh, morning, everyone. Uh, question okay. is on the gas modernization capital of kind of you know half a billion to a billion dollars a year. Um, you know, in, in your comments, you did highlight that you know adding new compressors or updating the compressors can you know significantly significantly reduce uh, uh, emissions. There, I just wonder, is there some additional upside here? You know, adding uh, CCUS to the compressors, or even just going straight to electric drive, plus adding in some additional uh, on-site solar. Just want to get a sense of you know how you're thinking about kind of upside flex to that modernization level. Okay, Bill, go ahead. Yeah, so kind of all of the above, Rob. Um, you know, for now, the modernization that we've done to date, or that we're currently doing, is gas for gas. So it's it's a replacement of gas where. Um, you know, we're we're adding, we're basically putting a new new equipment that's far more efficient. Um, but the future, um, uh, you know, including things like the, the the TVA project that Al mentioned, you know, electric compression looks pretty good in those circumstances. Uh, and those circumstances have to be that you've got really good, reliable power going to those units. It could be, to your point, um, an opportunity to site gas or to look at our existing gas and put the CCUS, a new pipeline, and uh, carbon capture on-site are very close. And, you know, I will say, Rob, there are some places where our storage, we've already proven out that there it's good storage for, uh, for carbon. So, you know, pretty good opportunities. And that, like I said, I'll just go back, all of the above, and uh, with the focus on what's, what's most economical and what reduces our, our emissions footprint the best. And then maybe as a follow-up to that, you know, you know, if you are able to eke out some additional capacity just with uh, in you know, new compressors there, you know, could you get customer support in terms of you know contracts initially, or do you think this would be largely be related to kind of new rate uh, uh, cases that are so often? Um, well, anytime we add capacity, we have to go to the FERC to uh, to put it into service. So yeah, I mean there are some cases where you add, you put a new compressor in and just by its nature, it's more efficient than the prior unit, though it has the same rated horsepower. But in order to deliver more um, and get certificated, you have to go back to the FERC if that's, if that's helpful. But it, it makes for a very economical expansion uh, when it does happen. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Rob. Your next question comes from the line of Michael Lapidus from Goldman Sachs. Your line is now open. Hey, guys. Thank you for taking my question. Real quick, on the liquid segment, and, and I know this is old economy stuff, but just curious. You have always kind of outlined it in investor days or analyst days. Um, a myriad out of potential growth projects once you got line three done. Just curious how you're thinking about some of those, meaning, I don't know, the extra 100,000 barrels at Southern Access or maybe Flanagan South expansion and some of the stuff, uh, you know, on the western part of the system as well. Okay, thanks. Um, yeah, we're, we're 
you're absolutely right. The liquids main line and the downstream pipelines have latent uh, capacity expansions available to them. I think we're uh, the best way to describe it right now is we're in active discussions with our customers uh, post line three to see uh, how and when we execute those. Got it. Okay. But do you, do you see those as things that kind of happen not long after line three come online? Or, or is this something that could take another few years and you'd need to see a ramp in either production out of, out of Western Canada kind of re-accelerate re further than kind of what the producers are talking about now before those become economic? Well, they're low cost, low permitting, and fairly quick to market expansions. And I, I do think uh, as we see the economy recover and as producers get uh, confidence that the economy is humming again, we, we should see some good uh, progress on those. Got it. And last, uh, is this would impact you guys and impact all the takeaway options. What are you all hearing about the timeline for Trans Mountain expansion coming online? And how do you think about the dynamics uh, of a market that's been short egress for, for multiple years, potentially becoming long pipeline takeaway once Trans Mountain and Line 3 are both in service? Um, so uh, I'm not going to comment on Trans Mountain's. Uh, in service state. I think it's best for them to talk about that. But we've been expecting Trans Mountain to come online and um, provide egress for quite some time now. So uh, our understanding of, of the market here in Western Canada is there's a significant amount of heavy crude wanting to come to market from producers that hasn't just been started up yet. That's in the range of four to 500,000 barrels a day. There are some uh, uh, very close to completion brownfield projects with the producers that would come to market um, very quickly as well with, with sufficient egress. So once line three goes into service, uh, we'll provide a little bit more egress. Trans Mountain will provide some more egress and that should fill up relatively quickly with all of the, these uh, projects that are really just waiting for that egress to show up. Yeah, Got I it. think this is just a quick add-on to that, Michael. Um, you know, if you look at the fundamentals here, and we just saw this through 2020, the, the fundamentals for heavy are, are very attractive to U.S. refiners. So I think given that and the fact that, you know, cash costs have really come down uh, in the oil sands uh, in terms of break-evens, and, you know, they've done a good job in, in bringing down full cycle costs. So. I think there's a pretty good opportunity here for the oil sands to surprise again uh, going forward, uh, given those factors. Got it. Thank you, guys. Much appreciated. Okay. Thanks, Mike. Your next question comes from the line of Robert Capillier from CIBC World Markets. Your line is now open. Thanks for taking my question, and I apologize for the background noise, but I'll follow on to what uh, you just talked about there. There are... Uh, there seems to be just a general uh, attitude in the producer community to conserve capital and they haven't wrapped up production quite as quickly. Um, and so I'm wondering uh, how you see that change of customer behavior impacting U.S. Gulf Coast strategy and also the appetite for mainline contracting. Well, I think our, our U.S. Gulf Coast strategy remains unchanged. We see strong demand 
four terminaling options in the Houston area, whether that's for tankage or VLCC export. It, having that optionality will always be important for our customers to maximize the net back on their barrels. We're, as we talk with producers, we, we see a very robust demand for capacity on our system and a certainty for that capacity. So I think both dovetailing to each other where a good set of our, our customers want to know what they have on our system, that, that they can use it day in and day out, then they can move uh, their crew to the best markets and maximize the value of production and refining. So we feel very good about the U.S. Gulf Coast strategy, and I think with mainline contracting, I think we've done a really good job at the CER and, and providing evidence that uh, the offering is good for industry as a whole, that it's supported by more than 75% of our current shippers, and we are very hopeful for a positive decision later this year. You know, Robert, I think you're right about the, you know, conservation of capital. I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. But if you if you think about the fundamentals of, of crude, obviously light primarily in this case, they're still pretty strong in terms of exports. And we know that there's a runway for, um, you know, crude demand going forward. You're seeing that happen today. So the export strategy that we have around the Gulf, I think that's that's intact, including on the LNG front that, that Bill runs. But, you know, the key to all of this is, and you're saying, you know, more pressure on this, keeping costs down. So we're focused on being as competitive as we can uh, and really working supply chains and, and doing what we can to make sure that, that uh, tariffs and tolls are, are, are low enough to attract these customers. Thank you. That's a good answer, but also a good segue to uh, the other question I had, uh, probably more appropriate for Matt. Um, as you mentioned, we're seeing a uh, inflationary environment in terms of, uh, you know, capital spending. And uh, that uh, seems to be translating also into the uh, offshore wind market. So I'm curious to know if uh, there's been any, any improvement in uh, the behavior of if the bid activity is becoming more rational in the offshore, offshore uh, wind uh, business. Go ahead, Matt. Sure. Hey, thanks, Rob. Um, probably the answer industry-wide is, is no. Um, not a lot of, uh, not as much discipline as we'd like to see generally uh, in that market. I, I don't think that's just, you know, relative to inflation, but just general, um, you know, appetite for the asset class. So, you know, we're taking a really selective approach uh, to the business. We've got our existing pipeline of assets, which have largely fixed price contracts associated with construction uh, that were locked in previously and we're on track and on budget on those construction projects, which is, which is great. Um, you know, going forward, um, you know, we're just going to be very disciplined, especially in terms of these, uh, high price leases uh, you know we're gonna we're gonna go to places where we don't we don't have to put up that kind of speculative uh, dollar in, in quantity um, because as, as you point out uh, you know that the discipline hasn't exactly been there across the board but we're finding selective select opportunities where 
uh, we see good value still in that market. And, you know, based on our partnerships and competitive advantages and capabilities, um, our pipeline continues to move forward on the development side. Okay, that's great. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Rob. Your next question comes from the line of Ben Fong from BMO. Your line is now open. Hi, thanks. Good morning. Also, a question on renewable power. You have the East West High Line uh, coming in uh, 2022. Uh, uh, can you comment on whether electric transmission is that? Is that something you want to you want to build on, expand, look at new transmission opportunities, or is 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 that more in that, that non-core opportunistic bucket? Matt, do you want to respond to that, or? Sure. Um, hey, thanks, Ben. I think it is opportunistic. You know, I think it's the latter category primarily. Um, you know, transmission is something that uh, is is still very challenging from a, a permitting standpoint. Obviously, um, you know, it's, it's it's we need more transmission for renewable, um, but uh, it's easier easier sort of said than done. So our you know, our focus is going to be primarily on the contracted uh, renewable power projects, and we don't have a lot of plans to invest in transmission. As, as far as East-West High, the project's gone really well, um, and so that one we like a lot. It is a rate-based regulated return type structure, which we like, and uh, it's, it's right on track and should be in service uh, early next year. So, you know, at that time, um, you know, we'll see what we – what we do with that, but we like the asset a lot, and it's got a good, solid, safe return. Okay, great. And, and then moving to the the Canadian LNG export opportunity, I haven't I haven't asked you guys this for, for a while. Uh, there's a new slow up there, new partnerships form. Uh, could you remind us your position there on LNG export and any sort of maybe more heightened conversations that recently. Okay, well, is, uh, Bill, do you want to take that one? Yeah, sure. You know, there are obviously big opportunities and would like to see things get organized. It's, it's actually, you know, quite exciting to see, uh, you know, what the what the NISCA uh, announced recently and, and having a project that's sort of led by, by First Nations. So that's good, and that fits well with us. We, you know, we engage with, with the local communities pretty well, and, and with First Nations, well, I, I think our, you know, our West Coast gas connector projects are actually pretty well situated for anything new that happens in Western Canada. Um, so those are real big opportunities, and then, and you got to approach those obviously very cautiously, but, uh, uh, but, uh, but good opportunities. And then yeah, I'll just, I'll get in a comment about the Gulf Coast. You know, the Gulf Coast is actually. Um, uh, seeing uh, you know, a bit of a resurgence or at least a pickup from where they left off maybe a year and a half ago. And, uh, you know, our efforts there, though they're not as grand, um, they're very manageable and, and there are a number of them. So, uh, so good opportunities in LNG for us. Uh, hope you didn't mind if I, if I got that in, Ben. <laughs> you know, just one other thing I'll, I'll add to uh, in BC, of course, you know, the good news is we're well situated there on, on our West Coast mainline. And so whatever happens out there uh, into the future, aside from the connector itself that Bill was talking about, it's, 
it's going to be good for our, our existing business there. All right, it's very helpful. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Ben. Your next question comes from the line of Linda Isergalis of TD Securities. Your line is now open. Thank you. Um, from an operational perspective, um, recognizing that your energy services um, are dealing with a number of factors uh, compounding um, the negative results, I'm just wondering if you could give us a sense of uh, what sort of demand charges we might expect prospectively or will they be um, diminishing uh, over the next year or two and would you uh, just renew them uh, opportunistically or can you comment on your, your strategy within energy services generally? Hey Linda, yeah Colin, yeah good question. So I think what you're seeing flow through our quarterly results right now is you know pretty much uh, worst case scenario. So I don't think any worse than this. It should should get better as a conditions improve. Any one of those three strategies we typically see some value from. Uh, and secondly, if not, um, we do have uh, you know contracts that roll off in the latter basis and taper down. So um, uh, I look forward to to seeing this improve. But no change to strategy. No, no, it's a, it's a small business. It's uh, it's I think it's smaller than our our peers' marketing businesses. It's typically back to back. It's tightly risk controlled. It's worked well for us last year's you know it was a huge year. Um, this year not, but it it still fits and it's uh, you know typically generates you know zero to one percent of our EBITDA. So it's it's well contained. Okay, thank you. And recognizing that the Alliance Pipeline is not a big part of your business, uh, but maybe just a comment generally on recontracting uh, in your natural gas pipeline, specifically Alliance, and how that might be influenced, if at all, by some of the emerging West Coast LNG export opportunities, potentially influencing duration or, or level of interest for, for that asset. Bill? Yeah, so, so I think uh, you hit it, Linda, you know, our, our Alliance Pipeline is probably one of two assets where we look carefully at recontracting for the future. The, the rest of them, really, we really don't see an issue with. Um, uh, an alliance is all about, you know, basis. However, it has the added benefit of, um, of you know, going to Oxable with, with liquids. And that's a, that's a major selling point that differentiate, differentiates it from others. So, you know, we had a pretty big con recontracting year over the last 12 months, and we were able to recontract, um, um, albeit for shorter term, understandably. Uh, and and we expect that to continue. I will say, you know, lately we've seen some, you know, some some movement, some positive movement there in basis. Um, the future, I I don't know. I mean, it, it, LNG is is a, is a ways away, um, so it's it, it's a bit difficult to tell whether that's going to have uh, a material impact. But overall, you would think that would be. Uh, positive for for Alliance. Thank you. Your next question comes from the line of Branit Satish from Wells Fargo. Your line is now open. Thanks. Uh, good morning. Uh, so I see you've got 10 to 15 RNG projects underway in Canada. I guess my question is, do you, do you plan to enter the U.S. market at some point? Um, I know the trade-off would be you wouldn't have your utility as a customer, but 
clearly you have expertise um, in the market there is big. So would you be open to producing and, and selling RNG in the U.S. to third-party customers? Okay, well, maybe uh, conceptually uh, we'll have uh, Cynthia answer that. And then, but I know Bill uh, has, has got some comments here, too, on, on uh, how this relates to his gas transmission business. Sure. Thanks, Sal. You, you know you're right. Um, the experience that we're gaining by uh, developing these projects, the R&D projects, how we're working with the, the, the various uh, participants and, and our customers, is something that we can build on. So we have, uh, obviously, the, the relationship that we've announced uh, in Canada with Walker and Comcore that's going to help us continue to build that expertise uh, and across Canada. And I know both uh, Bill's team and my team have been uh, talking about what that future could look like uh, with U.S. And while there are instances where we could, uh, you know, tie into some of the existing infrastructure that Bill has in the U.S., we do have obviously an opportunity to, to take and leverage the knowledge. So I think, you know, it's something that uh, Bill can expand on, but we're looking at it and, and if Again, it fits within all of the criteria that Al and Colin have talked about. Um, it's something that could eventually be developed. But maybe, Bill, you can expand on how your team's been addressing the U.S. interest. Yeah, thanks, Cynthia. Yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a huge opportunity for us in the U.S. And, you know, we're very lucky to have um, the experience that Cynthia's team uh, has and has generated and continues to generate with the sort of cutting edge uh, projects um, on the RNG front. You know, for us, yeah, you know, our, our infrastructure from the Gulf Coast over to Florida and all the way up to the Northeast, and we go by an awful lot of uh, potential source sites for, for RNG. And it, it's probably two, fa two, two factors, two, two opportunities. One, serving the local distribution companies, which is an obvious one, and partnering with them to do that. But then second, some of these more closed-loop um, opportunities where you have major industries, major farms that want to um, get uh, credit for, um, for their operations and you know, basically serve them with, with, pot, with uh, RNG that they actually get produced, gets produced into our system. Uh, so, I think I think the opportunity because of our reach is is tremendous. Great, thanks. Um, and then, uh, can you just give us a sense of how large the the Ridgeline expansion project would be, either from a capex or capacity perspective? Just just looking for some bookends around the project. Thanks. Nathan, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Bill. I'm sorry, no, it was about a billion dollar project, and. Um, uh, it's, it's basically looping, uh, looping and compression along our existing right of way in uh, in Tennessee. Uh, thank you. We have reached our time limit and are not able to take any further question at this time. I will now turn the call over to Jonathan Morgan for final remarks. Thank you, and thank you for taking the time to join us this morning. We really appreciate your ongoing interest in Enbridge. As always, our investor relations team is available to address any questions you may have uh, following the call. And once again, thank you and have a great day.
Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. We appreciate your participation. This concludes today's conference. You may now disconnect. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your law makers hands off my rewards tell them to oppose the durbin marshall credit card bill thank you for listening to tsx quarterly if you enjoyed the cast remember to leave a good rating and remember for any additional inquiries please consult the company's investor relations section on their website see you next time